everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of Reshit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze the biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. This podcast is sponsored by the family of Bobby Winter in honor of her 80th birthday. Bobby began enhancing her Torah learning in her 60s and is now a lifelong learner, starting with a devotion to Matan summer programs, which opened up a new world for her. Her family wishes her many more full years of travel, swimming, painting, birding, and yoga, and of course, more Torah learning. Mazal tov, Bobby. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. Lastly, please leave us a five-star rating so that others can find our episodes more easily. The Yosef stories can be divided into four sections according to the Parshiot that recount them. Parshat Vayeshev speaks about Yosef's sale, his journey down to Egypt, and his first term in prison. In Parshat Miketz, we have the rise of Yosef and the, his brother's interaction with him while they don't yet know his identity. Parshat Vayigash speaks about the confrontation between the brothers when their identities are revealed, and Yaakov's family moves down to Egypt, and we hear more about Yosef's rule over the land of Egypt. Our final Parsha in Sefer Breshit, Parshat Vayichi, speaks about the death of Yaakov and ultimately the death of Yosef. In Parshat Vayeshev, Yaakov favors Rachel's older son Yosef, and it creates tremendous turmoil within the family structure. Yosef's dreams do little to help this dynamic, and ultimately, the brothers turn to the worst option possible, fratricide. Only that Yehuda's suggestion to sell him thankfully derails the initial plan to kill him. Yosef makes it safely to Egypt, where his journey will continue to twist and turn. Chapter 38 famously interjects the sale narrative and recounts the story of Yehuda and Tamar, her essential neglect and then courageous claiming of her family rights. This episode will be the focus of today's conversation. The second portion of the Parsha recounts the highs and lows of Yosef's initial career in Egypt. After finding favor in the eyes of his master Potiphar, he falls prey to Potiphar's wife's sexual scheming, which lands him in jail. It is in jail that Yosef meets the two officers of Paro, the baker and the cupbearer, whose dreams he interprets and which will later grant him an audience with Paro. The Parsha ends on an ominous note, when the cupbearer forgets Yosef and his talents, and Yosef is left yet again in a pit. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with a new guest, Rabbanit Leah Sarna, who is on the faculty of and director of teen programs at Jerisha. She previously served as director of religious engagement at Anche Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation in Chicago and is a musmechet of Yeshivat Maharat. Leah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. I've been waiting a long time for this conversation. Uh, we've been in contact <laughs> for a while, so I'm happy that it, that it finally happened. You know, to frame this conversation today, I wanted to just elaborate a little on what I said in the introduction about chapter 38, Lament Chet, kind of interrupting, quote unquote, the story of Yosef's sale. Why do I say that? It's really because the Psukim suggests that exact piece. The sale of Yosef sort of takes a breather. It pauses in the end of chapter 37. 
we're told that he's sold to the Midianim, and he eventually gets to the house of Potiphar, Sris Paro, Sarah Tabachim. He gets to Potiphar, who's also a very powerful man in the court of Paro. In chapter 39, the first pasuk opens, Ve'yosef hurad mitzrayma, ve'yikneo potifar sris paro sarat abachim ish mitzri miyad ishmaelim asher horiduhu shama. It recounts, it's what's called a resumptive repetition. It recounts what we already know. And Yosef goes down to Egypt. He was sold there. He's bought by Potifar. And he was brought down there by the Ishmaelim, the famous contradiction, Ishmaelim, Midianim. And The question is, why do we need to recount what we already know? And the reason we need to recount this is because in between those two chapters, there's a whole story of Yehuda and Tamar, which takes a very big break between them. And so literally- it's another Yerida. And it's another Yerida, right? That's extremely, extremely important. We have Vayered Yehuda at the beginning of chapter 38. And of course, Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma. So we have these two descents. And this- question we have, of course, is why is the story of Yehuda and Tamar almost forcibly put in between them? And we'll explore that in a number of ways, I'm sure, throughout our conversation today. But first, I just want to sort of frame our discussion about chapter 38 in that it interrupts, quote unquote, the story of of Yosef's sale. And I'll just add one more piece before we sort of dig deep into the, the narrative itself, which is that, of course, the commentators ask this question. Because the pasuk opens in the beginning of our story of Yehuda and Tamar, Vayihi be'etahi, it was at that time, Vayered Yehuda me'etachav, he goes down or descends from among his brothers. It's a very weird phrase. There's a lot of ways to understand it. But I just wanted to bring to our attention two comments. One is by the Bechor Shor, who was one of the Ibalea Tosafot, a younger contemporary to Rashi, or of Yosef of Orleans. And he says the following. He says, why does Yehuda leave at this moment in time? He leaves because he saw how pained his father was. Yehuda, who of course knew to a certain degree that he was responsible for this terrible tragedy in his household, could not stand to watch his father suffer. And so he left the house. Okay, which is an interesting point in and of itself of what that means about Yehuda and what kind of responsibility he was at that moment willing to take for his actions. So the Bechor Shor offers us one perspective on why Yehuda leaves. Essentially, he leaves because he's extremely guilty. And then Rashi has this different idea. The Bechor Shor, it's kind of Yehuda motivated by his own conscience. And Rashi says, no, no, the brothers actually kicked him out. The brothers, it's the brothers who saw Tarat Avihem, their dad's sadness and, and suffering. And they actually said to Yehuda, you need to leave. This is your fault. Selling him was your idea. You need a time out from our family, which is a quite different dynamic, actually, even though it's kind of the same uh, order of events that the Bechor Shor and the, that Rashi are understanding um, who is kind of responsible for the Yerida of Yehuda is the main distinction there. And interestingly, with Rashi's understanding, you have a greater parallel to Joseph. So you have uh, Yehuda, say, causing the Yosef Hurad Mitzrayma, right? You have Yehuda being the one who caused Joseph being taken down to Egypt. And by Rashi's read, the other brothers then caused the descent of Yehuda as well. 
right? So there's like a double breach within the family, according to that perspective. Uh, obviously, one of them is connected deeply to the first. But what we're seeing essentially, according to both these opinions, is the complete breakdown, really, of, of Yako's family. Uh, eventually, at some point, we'll be able to pick the pieces up again, but we're very far away from that. Uh, that moment in time for now. So let's sort of like dig deep into what happens between Yehuda and Tamar. So first, I mean, the parak opens up with Yehuda. So he leaves, as we described, he gets married himself to a woman of uh, maybe questionable origin. The Torah describes her as a Canaanite. You might recall that Avram, for example, went to great lengths to not allow his own son to marry a Canaanite woman. And now it seems like Yehuda did that. Even Asav kind of recants after marrying these Canaanite women. He realizes it's wrong. And then he goes and finds Ishmael's daughters for himself to marry. And now we have Yehuda going to marry a Canaanite. It seems like in the different before she understand that kind of in different ways, but it, it's it's hard to really get around it because in Divrei Hayamim, she's again described as a Canaanite. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's a very complicated topic. And it again, makes us look at Yehuda in the beginning of the story. Because we're, go- we're going to look at him very differently at the end and say, what's going on, right? Where where are you holding at this moment in time? I'll also throw on one other piece, which is the chronological piece. Right. It is unclear, but very likely that this story does not take place right now at this moment in time. And again, it's presented as happening after the sale of Yosef. But for many reasons, a lot of it is is chronology. And if you look at different uh, lists of descendants and when they're said to have gone down to Egypt later on, it really seems that the story actually must start much earlier in time. But But the literary thrust of it is to let you know that it happens now. Meaning the question of when it actually happens isn't so important, but rather that we're being presented with, here's how Yehuda behaves in the sale of his brother. He theoretically helps him not get killed, but also puts forward a plan that is also very, very detrimental. And and then we have the story about Yehuda, and it's coming, I think, to try and offer a, a broader perspective, perhaps something more complex and nuanced about what Yehuda has the potential to become. Absolutely. And maybe that potential is kingship Hmm. yeah we'll we'll get back (laughs) Um, to that so anyways Yehuda marries this woman her name is Shua they have three sons Er, Onan and Shelah and then Yehuda marries off his eldest son Er to a woman named Tamar so Mazel tov, happy marriage. Actually, the Gemara thinks that Tamar, unlike Shua, that Tamar maybe was a convert. Hmm. And so with all the problematics of Yehuda's marriage, he, he then picked someone maybe different for his own sons, at least according to the, the Midrash and the Gemara. But then it seems like maybe Tamar is fine, but the son is not okay. Er bechor Yehuda, ra be'inei Hashem. And Er and ra, by the way, are the same letters just flipped to some yes. people. I think the bechor shor, yep. possibly. Um, says that they're, um, that, that Ra is actually almost like the etymology of the word Er, which is interesting. Um, so Er, the eldest of Judah, did, did wrongly in the eyes of God, and then God kills Er. So in Devarim, we have this idea of um, Leverite marriage, of Yibum, which is if a brother dies without children, another one of the brothers marries or sort of marries the wife, the widow of the deceased brother, and they attempt to have a child in order to carry on the name of the deceased brother. So it's all 
around the brothers. The point of it is to carry forward the legacy of the deceased brother and the patriarch of the family. So let's say those brothers dad has no role in it but in the telling in Bereshit Lamedchet actually Yehuda continues to play this very intense role in the kind of leveret marriage process of Tamar so instead of Onan the next brother saying I am gonna step up marry Tamar have another child with have a child with her in order to continue the legacy of my deceased brother what we see in the Psukim is Yehuda facilitating that marriage. So Vayomer Yehuda Onan, Bo El Ota Yibum, right? So Yehuda says to Onan, come uh come to the wife of your brother, marry the wife of your brother, and Vahakim Zara and and establish um lineage for your brother. Um, and then Onan says to himself, Oh, I don't want to have babies that establish lineage to my brother. Um, so then he kind of refuses to have babies with Tamar, and that's bad in the eyes of Hashem again. And then God kills off Onan also. And at which point Yehuda says, I have one more son. This woman seems to be killing him off quick. I am going to delay. And the Parshan go to town on did he actually eventually intend to marry her to the third son? Did he never intend to? But here's the thing that at the point at which um, Yehuda says, wait, that's the point at which Tamar essentially becomes an aguna. She's chained to this family, just like any woman today. This could theoretically still happen. A woman who needs Yibum or Chalitza, she's not allowed to marry outside the family. She can't move on with her life. Um, and yet, uh, Yehuda is not willing to facilitate this third marriage to his third son. But a really interesting piece of this is actually Yehuda's involvement, because today we would say it's the brother's job to do that. And that would be based on the halachot of Yuvamot, as described in Sefer Zavarim. But in Breshit, that really doesn't seem to be sort of the rules of engagement. And that seems to come out from kind of ancient Near Eastern laws of that time. So um, my grandfather, Professor Nahum Sarna, wrote a commentary on Sefer Bereshit, and he points out, he points to two different um, law codes from the ancient Near East that have versions of Leverite marriage. So he points to a compendium of laws from Middle Assyrian Empire who suggests that, that in, in that in those laws, the widow is married off by the father to another one of his sons. and But actually, in Hittite laws, even more interestingly, which we'll get to in a second, the widow is married off first to a brother, but then if the brother dies, she gets married off to the father. And that's, in fact, what essentially ends up happening in our story. So after Tamar has been kind of promised to the third son and she's waiting and she's waiting and she's waiting and she's waiting, she decides to take her destiny into her own hands. She um, covers her face and she seduces Yehuda um, and 
uh, the, the Torah actually tells us it's after the death of his wife. So there's there's lots of kind of psychology there for Yehuda and what's happening to him. Um, is this is it coming to tell us that he's grieving? Is it coming to tell us that okay he's not like cheating on Shua? <laughs> it actually says off- interesting. Vayinachem Yehuda. He had already been comforted, meaning he had passed that point of mourning, which of course is also ironic because he has found comfort while his father, a few who came before, it says will never be comforted um, for the loss of his son. So we have this feeling also of, you know, Yehuda has found some sort of peaceful place, right? But there's still that lack of peace Mm -hmm. residing in the original family. If I've already interrupted you in the middle of your thought, can I just go back for a second to that piece about about the, the ancient Near Eastern parallels? So first of all, you mentioned really briefly, but I want everyone to know who your grandfather is. So I'm going to stop you for a minute. And so a lot of you listening know that I really appreciate Casuto, Umberto Casuto, as one of the really the earliest religious Jewish uh, academics. He had like of the earliest access um, to a lot of the ancient Near Eastern materials um, along the similar prestigious line of uh, religious Jewish academics who were not scared to engage in the world of the ancient Near East was also Professor Nachum Sarna. Correct me, Leif, if, um, if you think I'm doing doing his legacy justice. And he wrote a wonderful commentary on on Breshit and also on Shmot. You can read them; they're meant to be readable to the intelligent lay audience. And he was a professor in Brandeis University. I just say for myself that these are of the people who in like my early journey to sort of try and combine the world of of academic study and, and a religious worldview were unbelievably formative for me to see these kinds of models, to see people who weren't scared. And ultimately, just to go back to our example, is that many of our Parshanim suggest very similar ideas. The Ibn Ezra, the Ramban, they all say clearly Yehuda is following an older practice that predates Yibum in the way that it's presented in, in the book of Durim. Meaning there must have been another version of how it was done then. They actually called it Chok sometimes, that there was like a redemption process. It wasn't exactly Yibum, but it was somewhere along those those lines. And, and that's how they attribute these changes. Yeah, I mean, we see another version of not exactly our Yibum in the book of Ruth, right? And again, she does Yibum with someone who's not her brother's, her husband's brother, because her husband's brother is dead. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So they were definitely, and that's a big question in the book of Ruth, which we'll leave on the side for now. But there are these questions also about how the ways that the law is formulated in the book of Durim, how must they relate or do they need to relate to the way that the law was actually practiced, right? Were they practicing these laws knowing that they were different than how they're written in Dvarim? Not necessarily, right? How it was formulated in Dvarim may be something that was a development of the law that happens along along uh, along later lines. But surely in the story of Yehuda, we're speaking about pre-Torah times, we don't have any expectation that they're going to follow exactly what it says in the book of Dvarim. So, but it's a it's a really important point just to go back to the essential idea, which is the question of how much is the father-in-law involved and how much is it just an engagement with the brothers. I'll also just say that in the background of this whole thing, you know, we glossed over it, but it's kind of evil what the brothers do to each other. And Chazal do not mince words to look at a lot of what they do, specifically also sexually, as something that is a really negative model for the way that people shouldn't behave, both morally and and sexually. And in this case, I can't help but also look at it against the backdrop of of the 
story of the sale, meaning once again, we're, we open up seeing brothers who don't cooperate to help each other, who don't want, right? That's, that's the whole thing. Onan says, I don't want to be the one responsible for upholding my brother's name. It's a really terrible thing to say. And of course, God agrees and he kills him off, right? <laughs> and so it seems like we're on the same path again of, of brothers who won't show up for each other. And a father who doesn't know how to effectively intervene, oh, right? Like yes. just, it's the same idea of, of Yaakov sending Yosef to go find his brothers. Yes. Um, and here again, you're sending, you send Tamar into the second marriage. And like, shouldn't Yuda have known hmm. that the animosity between the brothers would have led to a disaster? Oh, that's a really, really good point. And then of course, there's a tricking, which is the part I interrupted you at. There's a tricking of the father as well, which is going to take place next in the story. Yeah. So Tamara dresses up and she seduces Yehuda, essentially. And amazingly, she gets pregnant from that one encounter with him. She dressed up as a harlot and has one encounter with Yehuda. He says... She asks him for payment. He doesn't have payment. He leaves her his staff and his seal. And then he hears, three months later, he hears that Tamar is pregnant. And he says, wow, she is not allowed to be pregnant because she is not married to anybody. She has cheated on our family. Um, and he says she should take her out and and, and burn her. Uh, have, and she should face Srefa, right? She should be burned, uh, which is also interesting because like Srefa is not really the punishment for adultery usually. Um, it's like older kind of practice that we see surfacing in, in this story. By the way, I also say one other thing before we speak about the difficulty of what happens, which is I want to remind us that these laws were meant to protect women. Um, it's it's a very harsh story, um, and and we're going to talk about that. But these laws were meant to protect women, and that's so they wouldn't be thrown out of a family simply because they had a husband who died early before they had a way to solidify their identity within the family structure. So while it, things come out very harshly in this particular story, in their initial purpose, these laws are really meant to to keep women in the fold, since they wouldn't have had an independent economic identity, certainly without any without any children. Yeah, and in this case with Tamar, she's in limbo because not only Yehuda is the one responsible for her future marriage, but when Yehuda refuses to marry her to the third son, he says, He sends her out of the family, return to the house of your own father. But also, she's like an aguna to Yehuda's family. Yeah. She can't marry anyone else. And she's she's like not sufficiently family that he he's not even saying, stay in my house until we figure out what to do with yeah. So a fascinating thing that happens is that Tamar gets pregnant after one encounter with Yehuda. And we've been reading Sefer Breshit for a while now. So we know that even in the world of Sefer Breshit, <laughs> pregnancy is not easy. Let alone we know that from our own world and our own lives, infertility is common, but particularly infertility amongst matriarch figures amongst women who are seen as as righteous sarah has infertility rifka has infertility rachel has infertility 
so how are we supposed to see this idea that Tamar got pregnant right off the bat? It's not very realistic, <laughs> I think many people would say. And even the Talmud understands it to be not realistic. The Talmud has almost like a scientific principle that appears a number of different places that says a woman can't get pregnant after one encounter. And so then we have this problem of, well, Tamar did, and the Talmud addresses that. Um, and Tamar is actually not the only one. So, so far in Breshit, there have actually been three other women who have gotten pregnant after one encounter. Um, Two of them are the daughters of Lot. Each one in turn gets her father drunk and gets pregnant with him in what will result in the births of Moab and Ammon. And the other nation that came about from apparently one act of intimacy is Hagar, it seems. Certainly the Midrash understands that Hagar got pregnant after being with Avraham one time and uh the Haktava Kabbalah actually Rav Mecklenburg understands that you can see that out of like the way that the trope divides up the psukim or doesn't in the case of Tamar that they uh were together and she immediately got mm-hmm. pregnant. Um and so these Midrashim so the Midrashim Brashit Rabbah asks um, why is it that some of these women get pregnant straight off the bat? But the Midrash in Breshit Rabbah is actually only talking about Benot Lot and Hagar. And the answer there is, yeah, you don't have to plant thorns. They grow up on their own. It's impossible to get rid of them and they're terrible. But how hard do you have to work for wheat to grow? For the good stuff to grow, you got to really work for it, says the Midrash in Breshit Rabbah, as opposed to thorns and weeds. Anyone who has a garden knows you don't plant them. They just show up on their own. Um, so that's one idea. But that idea is actually really hard to apply to our case. And the Midrash there doesn't think of itself as addressing um, Tamar at all. But the Gemara actually asks about how is it possible that Tamar got pregnant this quickly? And the Gemara suggests that Tamar used a kind of physical intervention to make it possible for herself to get pregnant that quickly. And the Gemara also understands, by the way, that Tamar's infertility is entirely circumstantial, that her first two husbands refused to get her pregnant. We see it in the Psukim yeah, directly. That with seems her to be a shot. Yeah, at least for one of them. Yeah. It's not shot with the first Correct. husband. And the, the Gemara understands the first husband refused to get her pregnant because he didn't want her beauty to be marred by pregnancy and childbirth. And then the second husband in the Psukim, it says he didn't want to carry on the name of his brother. So she's experiences these years of circumstantial infertility. And it sort of seems like she says, I know I'm going to have this like one shot at like, I guess, insemination would be the way to say that. And she and the Gemara understands that she kind of like does some sort of physical manipulation. Maybe in today's world, we would think of a parallel to sort of IUI or IVF, like some kind of really like medical intervention with herself in order to get pregnant right away. Um, and that this is a woman who is really fighting for the continuation of the family name. She's fighting for her own fertility. She's fighting to get herself out of being stuck in a guna limbo and into this place where she is the mother of the Davidic line and the Davidic dynasty. And in some ways, that story makes it 
takes her out of the Benotlo Hagar category who have these sort of illegal or problematic or at least difficult, not to say that Hagar's marriage with Abraham was illegal, but it's certainly a hard story. Yeah. <laughs> so if you think about it from Sarah's perspective, it's a terrible story. <laughs> and so to take Tamar out of that category and actually into the category of our matriarchs who did struggle with infertility, the ones who ultimately produced what the Midrash would call wheat. Um, and just that unlike the other matriarchs who struggled sort of with their bodies having um, their, more, maybe more like physical infertility. Tamar's is more circumstantial, but everyone had to dive in and everyone had to do everything they could, whether that's for um, Rachel to buy the mandrakes off of her sister. Everyone did everything they could to, to, to uh, overcome their circumstances and overcome the infertility that they were struggling with physically in order to become pregnant. And Tamar was doing the same thing. You know, I think that this really astute description that you're bringing us about her circumstantial infertility is also significant because it also points us in the direction of this question of deception. One of the big questions when reading this narrative is what does the narrator i.e. God, what does the narrator think about Tamar's behavior in this story? Is she criticized? Okay. And while it's really, it's perhaps its own podcast conversation, I'm going to say that many think that she's not at all criticized. Meaning not only is she not a little bit criticized, she's not at all criticized. There's nothing, there's no verbs that are used to describe what she does. There is no framing. Yehuda admits that she herself was right, right? And that he himself was wrong when he later says that kami many. She uses deception here. And again, I think the, the description of, of the daughters of Lot is very significant as well. She uses deception. However, the deception is not presented as something that's negative. And if I could sort of, again, broaden us back to the, the Yosef story that we're in the middle of, uh, of, of that moment in time, there we said also earlier, we also have deception, but there the deception is is very, very negative, right? It's a real uh, painful uh, breach that's created in the family. Whereas the deception in our story is, is of a very different kind. As you said, it, it's to wield a destiny. It's to, it's to bring forward what seems to be the divine plan. And so there, there seems to be there's some sort of statement here about, you know, do the, do the means justify the end? Or, or there's a very a complex approach to this question and it's thrown right in the middle of the story and so we can't help but sort of compare these two different deceptions that go on so the one piece of evidence that we do see about it is that after um Yehuda recognizes i did something wrong here by not giving her to my son the third son shela then the Torah says, that Yehuda never sleeps with her again. So this woman who fought so hard to get pregnant with these, ultimately these twins, which by the way, another fascinating thing about the story is that she seems that she didn't know that she was carrying twins until they came out, which doesn't seem like such a common, um, certainly was not Rivka, but Rivka's experience in carrying twins. I can say that for sure. Mm-hmm. But there's something sort of sad for her at the end that Yehuda says, yes, she was totally right. Everything she did was right. And she has no, her fertility has no future. Yeah, meaning she's, she's going to be left alone, honestly, forever. Meaning she's almost fulfilled her purpose by, by bringing these two children into the world. Uh, I think that, that that's, definitely, that's definitely a very sad piece for the, for the piece of Tamar. I think that there's... 
that there's two other perhaps small pieces, if we can sort of throw it in here at the end of our at end of our conversation. And one of them is about Yehuda uh, and the way he develops it throughout this narrative. And the other is about the broader Yehuda uh, or the kingdom of Yehuda. In this story, I think that one of the many things we're meant to take from it, oh, there's so many layers to the story. We've like, you know, we've tried to, we've grabbed at a few of them, but there, there's so many layers in it that we see here the evolution of Yehuda as a person that he starts off as a patriarch of a family, as you said so poignantly before, perhaps maybe not, he's active, but perhaps not as active as he may have needed to be in order for it to be fair to, to the young Tamar. But by the end of the story, he becomes the model of somebody who can admit to their wrongdoing, which is, of course, going to be key in the evolution of the brothers' uh, maturation as well as they start along their journey towards discovery and understanding and eventually also some sort of remorse over what they do to Yosef. And so the first person we see at least having the potential to go through that kind of evolution is Yehuda himself. Of course, this is really significant on a broader level because he's setting a precedent for the Davidic line. Later, his descendant, David HaMelech, will also be able to say Chatati Lashem in a moment after he sinned, also with the woman, that he'll be able to account for his own sins. So while this is sort of just a brief, brief sketch of, of Yehuda and his development, we know that he'll eventually be able to redeem himself and to come in front of Yosef, who he doesn't yet know as Yosef, and to plead on behalf of his father because he's become somebody who's been humbled through his difficult life experiences. He knows what it's like to lose a child in the way that his father at least thought he lost a child. And and those experiences clearly impact Yehuda and enable him to have impact on the story's development in a way that will be much more profitable, moving, and productive than what he's done until now. And that's also one of the ways in which Yehuda gains primacy over Ruvain, because Ruvain offers up his own children, and then it gets rejected because anyone who would offer up their own children doesn't know what we're doing here. Totally. There's such a strong statement here about how much we're supposed to work for our children and our progeny, and how the last thing we are ever supposed to do is to abandon them, right? Even Tamar, she's abandoned like a daughter, as if she's a daughter who's abandoned. And I think that that's such a strong statement that also comes through in this story is that the last thing we are ever, ever, ever allowed to do on this earth is to, is to leave our children. Um, I think that that's, wow, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't connect those points until now. Uh, I guess the last piece is also just to remind everyone listening to sort of zoom out even more because this story that's quote unquote inserted in the middle of the Yosef story, many also look at it as a sort of foreshadowing for the two kingdoms that come later on. We have the kingdom of Yehuda, the southern kingdom, and the kingdom of Yosef, really. It's Ephraim and Menashe and others, which is the northern kingdom. Uh, that's the way they're called forever. And it's sort of the Torah's way of already interweaving these two kingdoms in this utterly artful way from their earliest ancestors in the book of Breshit. And we see the evolution of Yehuda. Why is he sort of 
why is he worthy to be a king and to bring forward this kind of process? Because he's the kind of person who can admit his wrong, right? He's the kind of person who can take responsibility even when he wasn't able to initially. And the story of Yosef's evolution, maybe I'll leave it as a cliffhanger and leave it for the coming for the coming episodes uh, because that's an evolution we'll see as well. How does Yosef, the young dreamer who has tremendous amount of confidence in himself, how does he become worthy of one day becoming the ancestor of the greatest? physically, meaning the largest kingdom of, of Israel. And so it sort of already sticks in here right at the beginning, the the fact that within the family of Yaakov, there are actually two natural leaders. As you said, Reuven will be, he'll be rejected as the Bechor, like like most of the Bechorot in the book of Reshit, right? The point is, of mm-hmm. course, you have to earn it and your your birthright is, is worth not as much as people might've thought. But yeah, and then Shimon and Levi have already disqualified themselves. Exactly. And they've already disqualified themselves, and we spoke about that episode in detail uh, in a previous episode. And and here we have the these this brother Yehuda already showing his prominence as someone who can lead, not because his rap sheet is clear, um, but because he knows how to show remorse and and how to evolve in a way that will eventually prove him to be one of the greatest leaders of the family. Yeah, and and it's not only I would say not only about the men. Um, we also have this character of Tamar, yeah. who similar to Ruth and similar to Bathsheba, eventually also I, I would say has to show great strength of character in order to be the mother of these fut- of this future dynasty of the Davidic dynasty. And of course, she will have two sons who, while they inch towards a story of sort of being in competition with each other, of grabbing one as they're leaving her body. We don't know. They don't kill each other. They don't kill each Neither other. of them kills the other. It's, it's reading into the silence of the text, but I think that it's it's perhaps very telling. And I, I agree with you that Tamar's presence here is unbelievably powerful. And it also makes us think about the fact that Rachel, which again, many have pointed out that she's not present because she's not alive in the in the story of Yosef's sale. And that we wonder what might have happened differently, how it might have developed differently if perhaps there would have been a mother figure who was there to steer things in a different direction, right? It's almost that we feel as if the women know that you can never abandon your children. And right, Rachel Mavakal Baneha, right? That she is she is still crying for her children. And she is this sort of in 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 the Navim, she's this figure of return, right? Yeah. So maybe she would have gone to Egypt herself and dragged him home somehow. Uh, Leah, I really want to thank you for this conversation. It was uh insightful and I think it really opened up a lot of avenues of of thought and exploration that I think we often overlook as we sort of throw this story in the middle of the of the Yosef sale. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.